Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. In our very first episode, The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler, we mentioned that one feature of prehistoric partnership cultures was that there didn't seem to be a huge gap between rich and poor. The dwellings were pretty much the same size and people weren't buried with huge stashes of wealth and richer riches like later dominator cultures were. That stuck in my mind as something I wanted to investigate further, but I didn't have a text or really know how to look into that. And then as I've prepared for future episodes, I've read a lot of 20th century texts about how patriarchy interlocks with other oppressive systems. So patriarchy interlocks with white supremacy, for example, which I understand. Um, But I'm also reading a lot about how patriarchy intersects and interlocks with capitalism. And I've never studied economics in depth. And so I haven't really felt equipped to analyze that intersection. And so I've been on the lookout kind of for a text that would help me understand how economics intersects with patriarchy and more specifically, the partnership model versus the dominator model in economics and how that impacts societies and individuals. So I was absolutely thrilled when I connected with Dr. Julie Hanks on Instagram. And she told me that Rianne Eisler had actually written another book about that very topic. It's called The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. And Dr. Hanks actually wrote her PhD dissertation on Eisler's partnership and dominator models. And so she recommended that book to me and accepted my invitation to come talk about it on the podcast. So I am just over the moon thrilled to have Dr. Julie Hanks here as my reading partner today. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for the invitation, Amy. I I love talking about Rian Eisler's work, and I think it's so uh, life-changing and gives us language that we haven't had to talk about this dominator partnership continuum. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm so, so excited that you're here. I've heard of you actually from so many different women, especially during the past few years, especially with the work that you're doing on social media, which is really life-changing for women, Um, my sisters and friends, and your work on your podcast, Ask Dr. Julie Hanks. And then, oh my gosh, you're just amazing. And I, I told you, Julie and I have actually had the fun chance to meet in person now since we connected. And I told you, I listened, I knew you as Julie Acevedo as a musician and listened to your music all the time when I was um, <laughs> younger, especially your Pray for Rain album. I love it so yes. much. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's the 25th anniversary this year. So I think they're going to oh. re-release it on some of the um Apple music and things like that. So we'll no see. Way. Keep you oh, posted. I'll to- awesome. <laughs> I'll totally download the remastered edition on my on my phone and listen to it again. I love it. <laughs> so and then the other thing also that I discovered, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on this episode is your TED Talk, The Cost of Idealiz- Idealizing Motherhood, um, which I have just recommended countless times to different friends. So you're an Thank expert you. in this field. Yeah. Oh, you're just such an inspiration. So super excited to have you here. And I want to start actually the way I start with all, all my episodes and have you introduce yourself, just you, where you're from, how you grew up, and just some things about what makes you, you. Great. Happy to. So I grew up in LA, uh, the second of 
nine children in a musical household. My dad is Lexi Azevedo, a musician. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and uh, grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it was a, you know, a typical 60s, 70s patriarchal household. And I experienced um, a difference of power between my parents. My dad definitely had more more say. Um, and watching that, I knew that that wasn't going to work for me as a woman <laughs> uh, when I grew up, but I wasn't sure what other options uh, were out there for me. So um, I saw patriarchy in the church and in my family and made note of it as I kind of developed. But I graduated from North Hollywood High School and then I went to BYU and it was quite a culture shock to go from North Hollywood High to BYU. And <laughs> just, I'm like, everybody looks exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so I, I met my husband the summer after my freshman year. And we married when I was 20. Um, I transferred to the University of Utah, where I earned my bachelor's in psychology, and then just went straight on to get my master's in social work while having two kids and performing and recording and touring um, as Julie Diaz Beto. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, so throughout my life, I've kind of combined a lot of different aspects. And I think that's part of my, how I rebelled in, mm -hmm. in a weird way, like, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get married young and have kids, but I'm also going to do all this other cool stuff and nobody can tell me I can't. <laughs> um, so I, uh, continued, you know, my family, we have four kids. Uh, we had two and then nine years later had two more. I went back to earn my PhD in marriage and family therapy in 2012 and then graduated in 2015. Um, and then that during my PhD program was when I was introduced just by chance to the work of Rian Eisler that we're talking about today. And that was life-changing for me. I am um, currently a licensed therapist and coach. I've worked with primarily Latter-day Saint women in Utah as a therapist. Um, currently, I'm an assistant professor of social work at Utah Valley University. I'm also the founder and director of Wasatch Family Therapy, and that's an outpatient therapy clinic in Cotman Heights, Bountiful, and Lehigh. And I'm CEO of Dr. Julie Hanks, LLC, where I do coaching, consulting, writing, speaking, online events, and courses. So through the years, I've slowly transitioned away from working one-on-one -on -one with people to kind of reaching more people through social media, media, writing. I've published a couple of books for women. Uh, so, so here I am. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Can I ask you one follow-up question? Because something that... sure. I, I, when I hear you talk and you just, especially when you said like, nobody could tell me that I couldn't do that stuff. And you just kind of like, you observed the world around you. And then you decided that you wanted, you wanted to be a mom, it sounds like, and you wanted all of these amazing things um, as an individual and to like mm -hmm. realize your own individual potential. How did you know you could? Because it sounds like you're like, nope, nobody can stop me. But how did you know? Because a lot of people yeah. just don't have that personal empowerment at that young of an age. Yes, I think there are two factors. One was I went to therapy myself. Uh, I started when I was 14. That gave me a 
a more fully developed sense of self than I would have had otherwise in my teenage years. So I really credit my parents for encouraging me to go to therapy at a time when I wasn't, I wasn't happy. And they just said, do you want to go talk to somebody? Mm. Uh, So therapy definitely helped. Uh, It's, it opened up this world of intangibles, of thoughts and feelings, of taking responsibility for myself. And then um, I think this comes from my dad, but there's kind of a sense of entitlement. Like I deserve everything I want. (laughs) And, and, and so does everyone else. Like it's not, it's not just, I deserve it, but like everybody deserves to have what they want and to Mm. get it. And I'm going to figure it out. And, you know, everybody, so kind of this, this, um, yeah, I think entitlements, you know, that has a negative connotation, but mm-hmm. in, in my life, it's, it served me well, like I deserve. So I saw my dad create this great life, combining family and his musical talents and leadership in the church. And I just kind of was like, you know what? <sighs> I'm, I got to figure it out. Like I'm going to figure it out. And, and I, I recall thinking I was probably late adolescence or early twenties. I want to figure out how to do life. So my daughters are excited to grow up. Mm, That's powerful. And so that's what I've tried to do. That's (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you certainly, when I saw, when I saw my mom's life, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying you're you're rocking it. You seem to be succeeding. But yes, go ahead. What were you going to? I was going to say that when I saw my mom's life, I didn't, I knew that there was something different for me. And she's mm-hmm. an awesome woman and took care of nine children. And I knew that that wasn't for me, that there was something mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other question I like to ask my reading partners is kind of a response to the phrase breaking down patriarchy. So you could talk about the role patriarchy has played in your life or kind of why you agreed to do this episode or however you want to answer that question. Well, I agreed to do this episode because I'm a huge fan of your work, Amy, and oh, your thanks. your. Uh, blog article, your viral article of Dear Mormon Man, What Would You Do? I sent to every mm-hmm. man I knew, <laughs> like, yes, this is uh, it. <laughs> um, so oh, thank thanks. you. And I I love your, your podcast. So that's why thanks, I said Julie. yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I recognized patriarchy, um, but I didn't have a language for it when I was young. And through my education and through life experience, I've gained a language and I've kind of, I think my feminist awakening was kind of like ever since my teen, mid-teens, kind of until it really solidified when I was doing my PhD work and came across uh, Rian Eisler's work. Um, but I definitely experienced patriarchy uh, in, in my church and in my home. And I felt and saw and experienced that boys had more opportunities and that men had more opportunities and more authority and more resources and more options. And that just seemed so unjust to me. 
and as a social worker too, that's my, my master's is in social work. There's this uh, value of, you know, social justice. And part of that was looking at the injustice between men and women. Um, so yeah, I've just, I've been aware of patriarchy and the language has kind of come uh, through the years. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like all of the work I do is to break down patriarchy and to create partnership. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I can really relate to that. And I don't know if, um, if this is kind of what you were saying, but putting language to it through your education, like you said, it, it reminds me of your TED talk where I, I mean, I personally, because I'm kind of a, a historian in training as I'm finishing up my master's, but you bring into it like the, the Victorian cult of domesticity and, and that historical timeline that informs the mm-hmm. expectations that we have that we don't even recognize, right? Because we're just growing right. up as kids in our in our house. We just think whatever everybody else is doing is normal. And then we learn like, whoa, that came from somewhere. Somebody made that up at mm-hmm. some point, right? And like, why are we all doing this? Um, that's That's a great answer. So thanks for sharing. I love that. Okay. Well, let's dive in. We're going to set up the text first by introducing the author. So just as a review, because um, hopefully most listeners have listened to the first episode in the series, but I'll just um, give a brief biography of Rianne Eisler. She was um, born July 22nd, 1931. And I'm going to share a quote that she wrote about her upbringing in chapter five of The Real Wealth of Nations. So Dr. Eisler writes, quote, I was born in Europe at a time of massive regression to a rigid domination system, the rise to power of the Nazis first in Germany and then in my native Austria. I was too small to understand what happened, but when the Nazis took over Austria, my life radically changed. Fear became our constant companion. On November 10th, 1938, the infamous Kristallnacht, so named because of all the glass shattered in Jewish homes, shops, and synagogues, a gang of Nazis came to our home and dragged my father away. By a miracle, my mother obtained his release and we fled Vienna. Had we not, we would have been killed in the Holocaust, as was the fate of six million European Jews, including my grandparents and most of my aunts, uncles, and cousins, as I found out to my horror after World War II ended. These early life experiences profoundly affected me. They led to my lifelong quest to understand how such a thing could happen and what we can do so it never happens again. End quote. Rian Eisler's family fled from the Nazis uh, and they found um, asylum in Cuba and then they later immigrated to the United States. And she ended up obtaining degrees in sociology and law from UCLA and she later taught pioneering classes on women and the law um, at UCLA as well. She's best known for her concept of the partnership versus the dominator model, which she elucidated in her groundbreaking work, The Chalice and the Blade, which was published in 1987. And that book was praised by the famous anthropologist Ashley Montague as, quote, the most important book since Darwin's Origin of Species. Um, We covered that book, of course, as we mentioned on our first episode. Um, But this book, The Real Wealth of Nations, 
was published in 2007. And um, some praise that this book received upon its publication, um, it was hailed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu as, quote, a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. And Gloria Steinem called the book revolutionary. So pretty amazing um, reviews from some amazing people for this book as well. And actually, I know, Julie, you've gotten to know Dr. Eisler personally, right, through through your work. What's she like? Yes, she's delightful and unfortunately getting older and, you know, I don't know how long she'll be with us, but I've had the chance to, uh, to study with her in some of her online classes. Um, she wrote the, uh, the foreword for my book, the assertiveness guide for women, mm. which is one of the highlights of my life. Um, Amazing. because she's just, her work has influenced me so much, but she's generous and uh, delightful and brilliant, everything you would would hope she is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how lovely! What an honor, and that I think it's so beautiful. And and as much as I'm hearing in your voice, as much as she means to you, I'm sure that for her too to look at you as kind of the heir who will continue on her work and her legacy. And you are spreading this, this concept of the partnership model to so many people who might not have discovered her work. So I'm sure that you mean just as much to her as she means to you. Thank you. There are a lot of people who are continuing her work in different areas and it's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, I'm really passionate about it, obviously. And, yeah. and my focus has been working on developing partnership in family life. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's get into the book. This is so exciting. I want to start out really quickly with um, three foundational ideas before we start quoting the book itself. Actually, I'm going to say that differently. I want to start things off with three foundational ideas. Um, first of all, I, you know me, I love words and their <laughs> definitions and their roots and the etymology I do of too. words. It, it really enriches our understanding, don't you think? Mm-hmm. To know. Oh, I agree. Yeah. So I thought one really interesting thing that Dr. Eisler uh, brings up is the, the word economics itself. So Dr. Eisler points out that, um, and this is a quote from her, quote, economics comes from oikonomia, which is Greek for managing the household. And then she points out, a core component of households is caring and caregiving. She says, quote, consider that without caring and caregiving, none of us would be here. There would be no households, no workforce, no economy, nothing. Yet most current economic discussions don't even mention caring and caregiving, end quote. So that's a foundational argument in her whole book that kind of undergirds her argument in the throughout the book that... The unpaid, invisible labor of the home that has typically been done by women all over the world is not even accounted for in economic models, and that's a big problem. And I thought that was so interesting that the very word economy comes from oikonomia, or like home life, the household. So like the <laughs> irony of that is was really striking to me. And then the second concept to understand as we go into the book is, again, Eisler's kind of core model that she developed that she talked about in The Chalice and the Blade, which is the partnership model as contrasted with the dominator model. Um, And so actually, Julie, I'd love it if you could summarize that model 
Um, and you can talk about, you know, the chalice and the blade too, if there's something that we missed in our first episode or how you advocate for the partnership model in your practice, just get us acquainted with the partnership model and kind of its implications, if you would. Yeah. So the dominator and partnership, uh, it's on a continuum. So very few societies are all dominator or all partnership. Um, dominator societies are structured by hierarchies of domination. So it's a hierarchical structure uh, maintained through fear and force. So, uh, so that's on one end of the continuum. There's an in-group and an out-group caring and quote unquote soft uh, values are are not um, valued. Men are in charge, men are privileged above women and and yeah caregiving is not is not valued. Um, economically, the policies are are designed to feed the people at the top to keep the people, the rich, rich, and, you know, keep the poor down. Um, and then on the other side of the continuum is the partnership model, which is organized by linking and connecting instead of ranking. So ranking is the dominator, linking and connection is the partnership structure. And what's interesting is it's also... Um, it's more democratic, but there are hierarchies, which a lot of people are surprised, but Eisler calls them hierarchies of actualization as opposed to hierarchies of domination. So hierarchies of actualization mean the people who are in leadership have the responsibility to actualize everyone in the group. And actualization is just to reach your highest human potential. Uh, men and women are are leaders in partnership societies. Uh, men and women are traditionally held masculine and feminine values are all valued in in partnership societies. And there's a high engagement and and value on caring for human beings and caring for the earth. And so economic policies and practices in this system support uh, everyone's basic survival needs and help actualize the, the whole group. Hmm. Awesome. Okay, so, so one thing that, that jumps out to me as you're talking about um, the hierarchies, mm -hmm. even within a partnership model, that there are still hierarchies. And that, um, when she says when she says that there are still hierarchies because, you know, that helps to get things done. It's like more efficient if you have a leader, of course. Mm -hmm. She's talking about the the kinds of the hierarchies or leadership that are earned through expertise or one through the democratic process, right? Where like the authority derives from the consent of the governed and that everybody has access to those leadership positions, right? It's not the kind of hierarchy where the only people eligible to lead the group are a certain privileged race or a certain privileged gender, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I just wanted to point that out because I, I mean, I hear sometimes like the, I can hear the people, uh, like the men in my life who might say, well, that is how patriarchy works. Like I'm a benevolent patriarch. And so mm -hmm. I do help you to self-actualize. I am like providing you with opportunities and I would never like exercise unrighteous dominion, but 
in the in a patriarchy, women don't have access to be those benevolent leaders, right? Mm-hmm. And I so am I I I'm am I right in understanding that like in a true partnership model that that Dr. Eisler would advocate for that anybody who wanted to and was qualified to be a leader would have access to leadership to be yes. a, that benevolent leader, right? Yes, and and the leaders would represent the uh, the population. Right? It yeah. wouldn't be just a yeah. select few. Um, it's and it's also a lot flatter of an organization where where the dominator society is a very high. Like I think of it mm-hmm. as a ladder, yeah. where um, partnership is flat, but there still is some hierarchy in it. Mm-hmm. Um, just and and a distinction that she makes that is really powerful is in in uh, partnership societies the leaders have power too yes and in uh, dominator it's power over mm-hmm. and that distinction can be really you know those small words make a big difference huge difference that's something that's come up so much in conversations with men for me lately who are like very dear men very dear friends of mine who are like wait a second if you're telling me that you want to break down patriarchy then like what even is my role in my family or what even is my role in my life and and i but i just i think that's so useful it's so useful to think like, no, you still have power to do whatever you want, except mm-hmm. have power over me. <laughs> like, right. just like I won't, I I don't claim power over you. I'm just going to be right over here reaching my own potential. And you can be right over there reaching your potential. And let's work together and let's lift each other up. So I, I love that. That's such a useful um, distinction to make power to versus power over. Um, okay. That's such a great, um, setup of, of kind of understanding partnership and dominator. So as we go into the book and then one really quickly, one last, um, thing that I just kind of caveat, right. As we get out of the gate, I kind of expected this book when, um, when I looked at the title, the real wealth of nations, and it was going to be a more caring economics, I kind of expected it to be, anti-capitalism. I thought it would be very socialist leaning and communist. And I was still, you know, I had an open mind to that. I was just interested in what she was going to say about it, but it wasn't, it it was so much bigger than any particular um, (laughs) political ideology, right? Like she's Mm -hmm. way- That's what's so beautiful about it. Yes. I thought so too. I thought so too. She, she actually points out that Marx, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, who wrote the communist manifesto, um, that they kind of were blind to the plight of women, honestly. Like they said a couple of things about women, but they were primarily concerned with quote unquote the worker, which at the time totally meant men. It didn't mean women. So they weren't, they just kind of ignored women. Mm-hmm. As an aside, they were also quite racist. <laughs> um and so, and she points out too that the 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 economic systems based on communist ideology that came later, you know, after Marx was already gone. He never saw what happened in Russia or China or Cuba or whatever. But you know, all of his ideas have led to dominator governments. And so she's, she, what she's proposing is not like a communist model instead of a capitalist model. She's proposing something altogether new that transcends those labels. Am I understanding that right, Julie? Yes. And what's so interesting is, is we think that capitalism or socialism and communism are the only two options. Right. And she presents 
a third option that that is so different. We're so conditioned to think of people in terms of ranking who's over, who has power over who, mm-hmm. and who's you know in charge and can enforce things. And and her partnership model and her caring economy model, it's it's a totally different way of thinking about human interaction. Mm. And that's what's what is so powerful about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really outside the box. You have to kind of like undo a bunch of assumptions, right, that we bring to these discussions. Okay, um, well, let's get into the book a little bit. Why don't you start us off, Julie, and we can kind of take turns. What was one of the main concepts for you in this book? So uh, one of the main concepts is that our economic models only take into account exchange of money, things that are bought and sold, and entirely leaves out human capital and natural resources. Mm. And so it values masculine and doesn't even acknowledge what is traditionally considered feminine work. And so it's divided by male is productive, female is reproductive, and we don't count. Like we literally don't count the work of women in our economic models. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even a factor in the GDP. Volunteer work, home caregiving, and natural resources are not counted, and so they don't count in our in our minds. And so that's a, a big take home from this this book and Eisler's work. Can I read a section um, from yeah, page fifty eight and fifty nine? Yep. Ultimately, the real wealth of nations lies in the quality of its human and natural capital. I should add here that an investment in human capital is an investment in human beings. It is the enhancement of the quality of life of human beings, of human happiness and fulfillment, not just of the ability to earn income in the market. This is fundamental to the holistic concept of caring economics. I should also add that by natural capital, I don't just mean the the nation's natural resources, but also our planet's ecological health, since without this, we risk losing everything, including our lives. This, too, is fundamental to caring economics. Financial profits should not be the the be-all, end-all of business and economic policy. The welfare of people and the health of the planet must be overriding goals of sound business and economic policies. That's powerful. Yeah, and and we don't we we just assume that how things are set up is is kind of the right way or the only way. Mm-hmm. And I love how she lays out like no we need to consider these other factors uh, in our economic uh, indicators and in, in what we value and what we count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, there's a, a passage that we shared from Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, where Woolf is looking at a newspaper. She's like in a, a little cafe and she just reading that day's news in London, she said, she says something like, I'm par- paraphrasing, but she says, any if an alien came to Earth and read any newspaper, it would become immediately obvious that England is run by a patriarchy. And I love, <laughs> that's like such a useful thought experiment that I do actually all the time where I, I either present pretend that I'm like observing 
other primates and like, hmm, what are they doing? Why is that guy hogging all the bananas? Why is that like, <laughs> like watching somebody else or being an alien and going to a different planet? And you realize like we could have established any number of different systems. And we just, it just so happened that this is the one that evolved, but it could have, I mean, an alien coming here would be like, whoa, <laughs> all the females are at home and they don't get any of the, <laughs> like any recognition and they don't get yeah. all the men are taking all that are telling them what to do and taking all the stuff anyway. Um, so that quote that you just shared, um, where she's, it says, quote, financial profits should not be the be-all, end-all of business and economic policy. The welfare of people and the health of the planet must be overriding goals of sound business and economic policies. That reminds me of Kate Rayworth's TED Talk. I don't know if you've seen it. I it's haven't. Called, oh, my goodness. It's so, so interesting. Um, it's called Her TED Talk title is called a healthy economy should be designed to thrive, not grow. And mm. she developed this um, this new idea in the field of economics. Kate Rayworth is a, um, a professor at Oxford and Cambridge. She's an, an economist. And she, she developed this idea of what she calls donut economics because the model that she developed is like in the shape of a circle with mm. two lines. So it looks like a donut. But um, I... She talks about that exact concept that that you just um, talked about, Julie. So that's really for listeners. That's really worth watching. Um, and then more on Kate Rayworth. Actually, my friend Susanna Fur, who who just was my reading partner for A Room of One's Own, was telling me about an article in the periodical called Dumbo Feather, and it features Kate Rayworth. And Rayworth talks about Adam Smith. And so, of course. The title of this book, The Real Wealth of Nations, is a response to Adam Smith's work, The Wealth of Nations. And just as a review, because I think it's important to know what re what Eisler is kind of responding to, Adam Smith was a Scottish economist and philosopher in the 18th century, and he published a book called An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, which is just generally referred to as The Wealth of Nations, and it was published in 1776. And it's one of the world's first descriptions of what builds nations wealth. And it's probably the fundamental work in classical economics. Um, Smith is compared to Sir Isaac Newton and his impact in the field of physics or Darwin in the field of biology. But the thing is that all of those guys, Newton and Darwin and Smith, although they're geniuses, and although their work made important contributions to our understanding of the world, they have blind spots. And just like we talked about Marx and Engels, like <laughs> every system that we just think, oh, well, that's just the way things are. It, it was at one point new and invented, and these all left out women completely. So I just want to And they're read. all men, right? And they're all men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And it's just it's like women don't even exist to them. It's so, so interesting. And then, and then they implement these systems that impact everybody mm -hmm. with, with no input from the women. Okay. If you don't mind, I'm going to read this one quick thing um, from this article that Susanna showed to me that Rayworth says this quote, I think those economists themselves would be mortified to see how their ideas had been contorted. We would start, mm. for example, with Adam Smith in 1776, writing The Wealth of Nations. He wrote this very famous sentence, which has come to underpin the power of self-interest in market economics. Quote, 
It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. And that's the end of the quote from Adam Smith. So now it's Kate Reworth again saying, meaning that people don't provide things out of generosity, but their own interest. And it is the market that ingeniously allows this to happen. Well, the wonderful irony was that Adam was aged 43 when he wrote his classic book. He'd never married, so he didn't have a wife or children to raise. He actually moved back in to live with his old mom while he was writing the book. So imagine if, at the very moment he was writing that classic line, his mom had called out, Adam, dinner's on the table. He would have realized, my goodness, my mom is the one who ultimately provides my dinner. He could have invented feminist economics right there and then and recognized the importance of the unpaid care economy from the get-go. But he didn't, and so it went unnoticed for another two centuries. And that's the end of her quote. I thought it was so fabulous. so, So great. So great, right? I mean, it just, again, it just points to the utter ignorance and blindness that men had to women and also yeah to the care economy that his mom was literally providing his dinner um so i just wanted to bring that up because that is again it's the title the real wealth of nations dr eisler is is saying like this has not been accounted for in the wealth of nations as we consider our societies so yeah And women have been trained to not value it. I mean, his mom Mm. didn't say, look, dude, I'm providing your dinner. So so we've we've bought into that. uh, And that's something that has part of what's been life changing for me about Eisler's work is recognizing how I devalued my own care work and the care work of my mom Mm. and really looking at how can I how can I value those contributions in a more meaningful way. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about that. But first, I'll I'll have you, um, I think that's going to come up a little bit later, but I'd love you to now talk about that kind of wraps up that point that I wanted to make. So if you want to talk about some more points from the book that stood out for you, but I am going to ask you more about that valuing piece. Okay. Um, yes, let's see. So I, I love... I love that she gives steps toward a caring economics. Uh, And this is on page, what page is it? Uh, uh, 43. So can I just read these seven steps? Is that that okay? Please. Number one, recognize how the cultural devaluation of caring and caregiving has negatively affected economic theories, policies, and practices. Number two, support the shift from dominator to partnership cultural values and economic and social structures. Three, change economic indicators to give value to caring caring and caregiving. Four, create economic inventions that support and reward caring and caregiving. Expand the economic vocabulary to include caring, teach caring economics in business, and economics, uh, schools, and conduct gender-specific economic research. Six, educate children and adults around the importance of caring and caregiving. And seven, show government and business leaders the benefits of policies that support caring and caregiving and work for their adoption. 
So those are like seven things, the, the steps that we need to take to get to a more caring economy. Hmm. Yeah, I love that she's so practical, too. Like mm-hmm. she, she kind of t- speaks philosophically sometimes, but then she gives action items of what we right, can actually right. do. And I, I like lists and yeah. <laughs> okay, what, can I, what can I actually focus on here? Right. Okay, so that actually does lead to the question that I was just going to ask you, which is where I think she says literally the words, quote, give value to caring and caregiving. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I've struggled with this issue because I do feel like some aspects of our society completely underappreciate the work of the home and even kind of like denigrate it a little bit. But Mm -hmm. I feel like in my, in our um common conservative religious upbringing, the work of the home actually is really appreciated and even idolized. And so women are told like how valuable they are and like being a mother is really, really like almost worshipped. And so mm. the, the work of the home, I don't feel like is complete, is unappreciated in, in our um, religious, our faith tradition. But mm-hmm. then the women are told that that's the only work that's acceptable for them to do and that the woman's only value is as keepers of the hearth. And you talked about that a little bit in your own personal life. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about that, because I know that's the subject of your totally mind blowing TED talk, which would have saved me decades of time and energy if I had just watched it like a couple. If that had been available to me, it would have saved me so much time. But could you talk about that idea of valuing versus idealizing? Yeah. Motherhood? Yeah. So I I would kind of differ in in our religious upbringing. I think I think the work of home is emphasized and idealized. I don't necessarily think it's valued. Um, and, and I say that because when something is valued in our society, men want to participate in it and men are not clamoring over women to do the work of being keepers of the hearth. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, yes, they are not. Um, <laughs> right. So I, I like to think about idealizing versus valuing. So idealizing feels like valuing, but what idealizing is, is painting a picture that is better than reality. And that actually hurts women to paint this picture that is not reality of what motherhood Um, or homemaking is, where valuing is just to simply consider something to be important. So valuing versus idealizing, and we need to value motherhood and caregiving and not idealize it because painting it as better than reality hurts women with children because they're disappointed in themselves. They never can measure up to this ideal. Um, and then it hurts women who don't have children because if it's the end all be all and they don't have kids, what's, what's the point? So it, it kind of hurts everybody. So we need to value caregiving instead of idealize motherhood mm. and value like caregiving for men too. Right. Right. So that there's not a stigma against a man who says, you know what, I actually want to be home with my 
babies and I want to be the one, you know what I mean? Is, is that what you're saying too? So that men want to be more involved in that they feel great about themselves if they do choose to stay home with their children and make that their career for mm -hmm. the way we expect women to do it. Yeah. And even if they don't choose to stay home full time, like a lot of women don't stay home full time, they see themselves as a father or as a human being, as someone who's engaged in direct caregiving. That's just part of being human, is taking care of other humans right. and not a woman's job. It's a human job. Right. That's so great. So great, Julie. Thank you so much. And I again, I, rec or I, I really recommend to listeners to, to watch um, – Julie's TED Talk. Is it, what was the title again, Julie? Exactly. The Costs of Idealizing Motherhood. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So the next thing I have is kind of a question for you, Julie. It's given that our, our society does function the way it does, like there are so many options of the way it could have evolved, but this is what we've got, um, where caregiving is completely left out of economic considerations. And, you know, there are malignant versions of patriarchy all over the world that demean and degrade women to keep them dependent and to keep them vulnerable by not allowing them to work. That does exist. But then also, like we just talked about, there are also benevolent versions of patriarchy that idolize and praise women, but also kind of to keep them home. And, and still the result is the same. It makes them dependent and vulnerable by not allowing them to work. And we could talk if we had time about the feminization of poverty that the the mm. a huge percentage of the world's poor that lives on you know less than two dollars a day are women and children mm. um this is this is the world we live in so what would you advise us to do about it and i was thinking maybe one thing that we could do as voters to affect change in society and eisler gave some ideas about that but um one thing that you advise people maybe you know, in your own practice um, that you do to affect change in people's personal lives so that they um, can kind of embody in their families and in their personal lives more of a partnership mentality that's more healthy? Yeah. So I, my focus has been starting at home with developing partnership in the home and modeling that. And you can do that with a man and a woman with two men, two women, but <clears throat> that they work as partners together and that the mm -hmm. work, the work of everyone is valued. So if one is at home and one is goes to work, the work doesn't, the work schedule doesn't dictate everything else. Um, the person who's employed doesn't have total access to the resources and the other person doesn't. So restructuring mm -hmm. family life. So there's gender equality, shared power, uh, shared influence and, and caring values in the home. So then kids grow up and expect equality in all of the other systems, expect everyone to care for each other. Uh, they expect to, to share, to have those um, partnership qualities of, of caring for other people. And that's just the norm. So I think if we focus mm -hmm. on the family, then we create, we kind of wire kids' brains toward partnership instead of domination, which we currently are doing. 
Hmm. So that's, I mean, we always talk about how the family is the basic unit of society, right? And that then it's from the ground up that you're saying that these kids will grow up to be the adults who wouldn't stand for anything different than partnership, right? Because right. that's what and, they saw. Yeah. And I don't think that's the only way. I think that's a way. I think we need to to work at every level, the micro with individuals and families, um, the mezzo with, you know, communities, churches, and then the macro policies and um, on all of those levels, we can work. But my focus has been on how do we change? So, so kids just think that partnership is the way. <laughs> yeah. And right. that is how things should be. Um, that That's the default instead of the dominator model of um, ranking uh, in families of fear and force in families and shame. And, um, you know, how do we move from dominator families to partnership families? Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And, and so important as you talk about all the time that it's important to remember that that kind of those dominator behaviors, some, sometimes it can be, if it's like spoken in a kind voice or it isn't somebody who's like a, a really um, aggressive, abusive person who's who's um, kind of enforcing his will, it still can be a dominator behavior, right? Like for for right. for example, right? Like the the money earner in the family who comes home and says, "Oh, sorry that you're sad, but yes, we are moving to Seattle, whether you like it or not, because I'm the one who makes the money." Sorry. And you can say it like in a nice voice, but it's still a dominator thing to do. <laughs> right, right, right. Another another example of that is, say, um, a woman is a full-time caregiver or has some kind of creative outlet. So I studied creative women for my dissertation. Um, so say a woman has a, a creative meeting. The meeting is not going to make money. The husband has a a work meeting that's going to be related to making money that, you know, the assumption is, well, his work is going to mm. be prioritized. That's mm-hmm. a dominator move. And, mm. and men and women both assume that, Oh, well, she better cancel hers to be with the kids because his is more important. Well, who says who mm. isn't her actualization just as important as his, and I mean, I know there's a survival part in there too with um, with the financial aspect, but we just assume if it makes money, it's the most important thing yes. where we're not looking at the quality of life, the quality of, of um, caregiving and those kind of things. So there are really subtle ways that domination happens in families. I think one way that's common is the use of shame. So you're not beating your child or you're not, you know, threatening, but to use shame, like somehow telling the child they're not okay. That's emotional domination. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's it. Those are great examples. And I'm that really kind of brought it home. All of these examples that Eisler uses throughout the book of, um, yeah, you using using kind of abusing your power in in lots of different ways and that example of like the being motivated by money will always trump you know people who are 
trying to realize their own potential in creative ways. And I, I thought of that. She brings up natural resources a lot too. Like you, mm-hmm. you've quoted that before with taking care of the earth. And I just think on a political um, or on that macro level of the choices we make about whether to exploit our natural resources and destroy the environment. I mean, if if there's enough money, <laughs> people will do it, whether right. or not it's good for the earth and whether or not it's going to, you know, uh, destroy the environment for our own grandchildren. Um, yeah, it just happens on every level. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I know there was one more thing, Julie, here that you had written down. Do you want to share that last quote that you had as our last point? Yeah, it's the importance of stories. Um, and this is from page 193. Many cultural stories worldwide present the domination system as the only human alternative. Fairy tales romanticize the rule of kings and queens over, quote, common people. Classics such as Homer's Iliad and Shakespeare's King's Trilogy romanticize heroic violence. Many religious stories present men's control, even ownership of women, as normal and moral. These stories came out of times that orient, oriented much more closely to a pure domination system along with newer stories that perpetuate these limited beliefs about human nature, they play a major role in how we view our world and how we live in it. But precisely because stories are so important in shaping values, new narratives can help change unhealthy values. Of particular importance are new stories about human nature. We need new narratives that give us a more complete and accurate picture of who we are and who we can be. Stories that show that our our enormous capacities for consciousness, creativity, and caring are integral to human evolution, that these capacities are what make us distinctively human. Hmm. That's beautiful. So can can you think of some stories that do help us embody better values? I think, um, well, part of what I concluded in my uh, dissertation study was a way that I could do that was to support the creative work of women, because Mm -hmm. women tend to include partnership themes in their creative work. Mm. And so I have committed to buy art from female artists to um, to make an effort to buy books and literature from women, uh, from women of color, and to make a concerted effort to elevate women's stories because they've been left out of the storytelling for so long mm. and they tend to carry more partnership values. So that's one way that I've personally committed to uh, to find and elevate stories that embody partnership values. Mm, I love that. That's so great. I've noticed, I mean, it's, I, I guess we all have noticed there, there are really exciting um, changes happening. I feel like in media right now with mm-hmm. I'm seeing movies and even I just watched, <laughs> this is so funny, but I just watched that cartoon series. My kids made me um, avatar, the last airbender. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Did your kids ever watch that? 
The old one is there, or is there a new one? I don't know about no, the new one, the but I did one. watch like, the old one. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. It's from the mm-hmm. the early two thousands, um, and I don't know that I I will have to look up and see if they have women on their team. But wow, those characters are so balanced and so whole, and like gender, like just extremely empowered and caring like they're tough but they're they also cry and the boys mm. cry too and they mm. I'm just like oh these are so much better stories than I had when I was young um mm-hmm. I'm noticing that things are really starting to change so much partnership in that series I know that's mm. a silly recommendation but if your kids are watching it you should encourage it I mean to listeners like it that's yeah. a really really great show that I'm I'm feeling like an awakening in our culture that people are starting to want that and support that with the yeah. with, with money. I I totally agree. And in, in movie, I'm a big movie goer. Yeah. And I've I've noticed that uh, there have been more caring themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of one of the eight I developed eight C's of partnership families, but the last one is mm-hmm. creation and collection of partnership stories. Mm-hmm. And so I challenge families to create stories, to write stories, to write down their own stories uh, to, that, em, that embody partnership and to actively seek media and books uh, with diverse characters, with caring themes, with, um, you know, violence minimized and used only as a last resort and those kinds of things. So that's, that's something that uh, I've integrated into my model. Mm, I absolutely love that. And I feel like it gives me chills to think of girls creating those stories and consuming those stories and also boys that if mm-hmm. if boys are watching and reading caring partnership stories and and then they're writing stories like that. So it's really coming from them mm-hmm. and they're putting that out into the world and kind of envisioning it. Oh, I just love that, Julie. What a powerful exercise for families to do together. And to participate in the creation of that. I just love right, it. Right, right. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, is there any like um, final takeaway that you want to share? Or Yes, my favorite quote uh, from Rian Eisler is, when the status and power of women is greater, so also is the nation's general quality of life. When they are lower, so is the quality of life for all. Fantastic. That that's like inspiring and also provable with data, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it really is true. Well, thank you so very much for being here. I'm um, just so thrilled that we got to have this conversation and so appreciate you reading this book with me. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much for inviting me, Amy. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be tackling our biggest text, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. This book was published in France in 1949 and then translated into English and published in the United States in 1953. It made waves all over the world, changing the way people thought about sex and gender forever afterward. It is so packed with information and ideas that my reading partner and I broke it into three sections. So next week, we'll have three episodes discussing this one gigantic landmark text. It's almost 800 pages long, so no one will blame you if you don't read the whole thing before listening to the next episode, but it really is worth at least looking it up online or flipping 
flipping through it if you have it on a bookshelf at home. Some of Beauvoir's ideas are still controversial, so the discussion promises to be a really interesting and rich one. So see if you can get a copy or look it up online, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 